I have a question today, and it's whom or what do you love? Whom do you love? We mentioned a couple songs by George Thorogood this past week. First one is, of course, bad to the bone, which we are. Not just some, but all human beings, bad to the bone. Once you recognize that you're bad to the bone, you're already in the circle of redemption, which is a good thing. There's another song he did with improper grammar called, Who Do You Love? And so me using proper grammar as an English major, I'm calling this message, Whom Do You Love? Or What? Whom or What? Do you love? Galatians chapter 1, starting at the very end of 3C, verse 3, the C part, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then 4, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present. That's, that's a perfect active participle of the verb Anistemi, the present evil aeon. I'm using the word aeon instead of age, A-E-O-N. Aeon, partly because my nickname for my grandson Adrian is age, and I don't want to call him an evil age. In fact, sometimes I call him stone age. But aeon is actually better. It goes along with the Greek word aeona and the Latinization of it, aeon. So the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue, deliver us from this present evil aeon according to the will of God our Father. The will of God our Father is eventually to recapitulate all things, all beings in Christ Jesus. So according to the will of God, We are being delivered from this present evil age. The great concern for us who are being saved, and that's an ongoing action in 1 Corinthians 1.18. To those of us that are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. The great concern then for us who are being saved from this present evil aeon is that we be saved from our love for it. For in 2 Timothy 4.10, as Paul says, Demas, once a co-worker with Paul in Colossians 4.14, along with Luke, Demas has deserted me. Having come to fall in love, agape, that is, with the present eon, came to be in love. He fell in love with the present eon. There's no way of being continually delivered from the present evil age if we love it. So this is my great pastoral concern. My pastoral concern is not that you would all be convinced about universal salvation. That's not my concern. My concern is, do you love this present age or do you hate the evil age and hate your life as defined by it? Because those who hate their lives as defined by this evil age will find their lives as a participation in the fidelity of Jesus Christ. That's the choice before us. We tend to think of people in terms of good people and evil people, but the line of good and evil runs through us all. And that's what I'm going to be getting into in the parable of the weeds among the wheat. It's not about the separation of bad people from good people. It's the separation of the Adamic ontology from the life of Christ in us, which is sometimes so painful it involves weeping, the grief of separation, and gnashing of teeth, the pain of separation. So, combined with that, I want to quote once again Mr. Stauffer, the German theologian from his New Testament theology, 
in our famous note 738, he says, The church of God is not the end, but the beginning of a renewal and redemption of all mankind. The church of God is not the end, but the beginning, the beginning of a renewal and redemption of all mankind. Now, evil, which in the Greek is poneros here, describes the present eon. And it means that it's an age full of peril, annoyances, distractions, idolatry, deceptive allure, and anxiety. So when Jesus says, be anxious for nothing, he's saying, don't love this present age. It's full of anxieties, the wrong kind. It's an aeon full of evil days, redeeming the time for the days are evil, Paul says in Ephesians 5, 16. The days are evil, which Joseph Thayer describes as a time full of peril to Christian faith and steadfastness, a time of peril to Christian faith and steadfastness. The present evil aeon is a synonym for the cosmos, as it is often used, especially in John. Cosmos with a K, an evil arrangement. The cosmos is the world in the sense that its content is determined as a configuration in opposition to the will of God. And it is in opposition to the description of your life in Christ as God sees it. So, again, the present evil aeon is a synonym for the cosmos. In John 15, 19, Jesus uses the term five times in calling his disciples out from it. If the world cosmos hates you, don't be surprised. It hated him first. This is the cosmos, the present evil age. Now, running concurrent and seated right in the midst of this age is the irresistible invasion of divine grace, which takes on the form of a life of participation with Christ through the cross and by the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of the crucified Christ and the spirit of the risen Christ. So we may think that the issue of urgency is all over because we've chosen Christ and therefore we have eternal life. But that's not even the issue. The issue is, do we choose this present evil age and forfeit the life that's available to us in this age? Or do we lose our life as defined by the evil age and find it right now in this time? in a participation with Jesus Christ's life, fidelity, and love. So that's the great concern of a pastor teacher, of a shepherd teacher for the flock of God. That's the great concern of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. That's the great concern of the great shepherd of the sheep who has called his people out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the burden of the shepherd teacher. The contents of the cosmos are determined by the lust of the eyes or a desire promoted by what we see in this world. The world is a facade. It's not real. It's, not a, it's a cosmetic facade. It has many attractions to it. The lust of the eyes. And again, lust is always the inner craving or ambition to thrust one's will against God's will, one's way against God's way, one's thinking against God's thinking, one's way of knowing against God's way of knowing. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and of all the things that I want you to know, the word flesh here is in Paul's writings especially, when he speaks of the flesh in its negative sense, he's speaking of a superhuman enemy who sponsors an impulsive desire and ambition 
that you can't resist, you can't overcome, no matter how stoic you are, no matter how ascetic you think you are. Asceticism, where people give up a lot of things and think they're serving God, is just another way of lust. It's another kind of lust. It's not God's spirit working in that person. And so, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, bios life, the pride of this biological life, this life in this age, this lifestyle, pride in one's lifestyle, from which we must break away, according to Second Peter 1.4, if we are to participate in the glory of the Father and the love of the Father and the fidelity and love of Messiah Jesus, if we are to have the life of the coming age, which has come already, although not been consummated in Christ Jesus. Or as Second Peter 1.11 says, so you will have an entry into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, richly supplied to you. This everlasting kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and the life that participates with his fidelity and love is already present and available to be lived, to be laid hold of, as Paul says it in 1 Timothy 6.12. Lay hold of that age-abiding life, Timothy. Lay hold of it. Apilambano, imperative, lay hold of it. And he says later in 1 Timothy 6.19, warn those who are wealthy, rich in terms of material goods or other benefits in life. Warn them not to trust in the uncertainty of riches, earthly riches, but to lay hold of that which is life indeed, life in reality, that life of the coming age which has come, a life that can be lived in some meaningful measure now. The living and thinking in participation with Christ's faithfulness by grace is as radically distinct from the living and thinking of the evil aeon as light is distinct from darkness. In fact, that's exactly how the Bible speaks of it. Living and thinking in participation with Christ's faithfulness by grace is walking in the light. And the living and thinking of the present eon is walking in darkness. In connection with this, Jesus warns the one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know where he's going. John 12, 35, the thinking of this present age needs to be radically rehabilitated. That's why we come to church. In Romans 12, 2, we're hitting this from another angle in Romans 11, where Paul reproves. You see, all scripture is profitable, not only for teaching, but for reproof, reprimand, correction, correction. Instruction in righteousness, which is God's act of deliverance. Instruct, instruction about God's act of deliverance, an act that has to come from outside this world into this world, and a salvation that has to come from outside ourselves. So then, that's Romans 12 too. Stop being conformed to this age. That is in your mind, in your thinking, in your way of knowing, in your way of living, in your way of being. Stop being conformed to this age. He's already defined it as an evil one in Galatians 1.4. But rather, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the renewing of your thinking, the renewing of your knowing, the renewing of the very way you know. Once I knew Christ after the flesh, said Paul. Now, I don't know him that way anymore. Why? There's been a radical conversion in his way of thinking, which fancy word is epistemology. So the thinking of this present age needs to be radically rehabilitated, especially as it involves arrogance, 
Romans 12.3. I, Paul, said, I, Paul, according to the grace that was given to me, that's the grace of apostleship, that's an authority. I, according to the grace given to me, tell you not to be arrogant in your thinking, thinking in terms of illusion, thinking in terms of the facade of this present age, and it puts up a pretty good facade. Once you see through the facade of the age, you can't help but hate it. And you can't help but love the people in bondage to it. One of the great things that Paul brings forth, and we're going to have to understand this if we go through Romans someday or Galatians someday, sin is not just a moral flaw. It's a power, an alien power that keeps people under its grip and control and enslaves people so that we are all in responsible guilt for sure because of our active complicity with sin. But we're also enslaved to sin as a power. Same with the flesh. The flesh is a power. The only power that overcomes it is the spirit of God. Galatians 5.17. Same is true with death and the law itself. The Torah which became the ally of sin. Because of the flesh. And so the thinking of this present age needs to be radically rehabilitated, especially because it involves arrogance, which by definition is the antithesis of the reception of God's grace. Taken in connection with this present evil age in Galatians 1.4, then 2 Timothy 4.10 becomes a clear-cut warning. There Paul says, Demas has deserted me. It's a, it's a very strong term here. It's like a military desertion. It's going AWOL, absent without leave from God. Demas has deserted me because he loved. And the Christian, make that the complete, I don't know why I keep saying that, the complete Jewish Bible says because he has fallen in love with this present eon. Ton nun aeona, noon, the now age, the present evil age. The great question before us is not whether we believe in universal salvation or not. You might think that's the great question. It isn't. The great question before us, Tetelestai Phalanx, is not whether or not we believe in universal salvation. The question is, whom do we love? At the end of John, after all that fantastic revelation of the incarnate eternal word, Jesus makes this issue to Peter. Who do you love? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Then feed my sheep. Love for the Lord Jesus Christ is the primary motive for the feeding of the sheep. Feed my lambs. They're the particularly needy ones. And of course, we all know that Jesus so graciously gave Peter three opportunities to profess his love, however weak, for the Lord Jesus Christ as a way of canceling the three denials that he made of him. Before the cross. God is so gracious. The great concern before us. Is whether we will properly hate. This present evil age. Or whether we will improperly love it. The answer to this question determines whether we will forfeit the life of the coming age. That means now. Don't get me wrong. That life is coming for us all. And like the new mother nature come to call in the Guess Who song, she's getting us all. She's getting us all. There's a new creation come to call. It's getting us all. But we, ha we can refuse the life of this coming age, which is now present, 
and refuse to live it in the present. And that will have everlasting implications also at the Bema evaluation of Christ. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and to give an account. How that takes place, we only have images. We have images of fire burning up useless stuff. We have images of silver, gold, and precious stones remaining. We have images of wood, hay, and stubble going up in smoke. So the great issue right now is right now. This is the issue. It's now. Will you love your life as defined by this evil age? Or will you forfeit that life, lose that life, hate that life, and find your life in participation with Messiah Jesus, our Lord? That's the question. The great concern before us is whether we will properly hate this age. And it is proper to hate this present age. If Demas had hated it, he wouldn't have forsaken Paul. But he loved it. He came to love it. Took a while. This is the great concern of the true shepherd teacher for the flock. This is the concern of the chief shepherd for the sheep who are his people. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. The present age says you make yourself. You make it happen. You make yourself. The messianic age says it is he that has made you, not you yourself. And you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God in you, both willing and working to his own good pleasure. The present evil aeon is properly hated by Christians. And I think it's almost a measure. I think it's almost the measure that we hate the age. We love the people enslaved in it. When Demas is remembered sadly by Paul as one who deserted him, it is because Demas had come to love this present age. And the word love is strong. Agapesas. He got to love it and place the highest value on it. Loving this present age is cherishing the Adamic ontology or the life of Adam in us. The existence in the old fallen Adam. It's loving our life as defined by the present evil age. Treasuring our enslaved existence under the alien power of sin. A little bit of comfort here. Once you understand that you're radically enslaved to the power of sin, you're already being liberated from it. That's why I'm doing this today. Loving this evil eon causes us to forfeit our life for the present as defined by the messianic age, which is a new way of living. Romans 6, 4, Romans 7, 6, a new way of knowing, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17, a new way of thinking consisting of participation with Christ's life and fidelity, Galatians 2, 20. Now carefully consider this. We've heard it. People slough it off as mystery or as mystical and as uninterpretable, but it isn't uninterpretable at all. You should understand what it means immediately. When Jesus says in John twelve twenty five, the one who loves his life will lose it. But listen carefully. And the one who hates his life in this world, his life in this world, doesn't mean you hate your life. It means you hate your life as it's defined by this evil age. Where they call the thing that plagues people everything but sin. Now it's neurosis or psychoneurosis or anxiety or something else you can take another pill for, or this or that. Which takes away the fact that we are responsibly guilty of sin 
as well as under its alien power. And God's intent is liberation on both fronts. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for the life of the messianic age. He will find his life in the messianic age, which has already come. It's not consummated, but it's already come. This is the life that Christians are forfeiting while they still hold the label Christian and tell everybody they have a personal relationship with Jesus, which, of course, is a lie. Now, we like to blame the Pharisees for a lot of things because the Pharisees were bad dudes. They were in opposition to Jesus Christ. But we've got to understand that the Pharisee is in us. There was a man, and Fleming Rutledge brings this up in her, the best book I've ever read on the cross, The Crucifixion. And I'd recommend people spend a year with that book. Spend a year with it if you want. I mean, just recommend it. But she quotes a man who was under the terrible regime of Stalin, which in some ways was worse than the Nazi regime in Germany. But this survivor of the Stalinist regime, in which tens of millions of people were killed and starved in what is known as the harvest of despair, this person said it wasn't just the evil dictator or the evil powers. He said the line of evil ran through us all. They were under the pressure of this horrendous oppression. Every person was forced into a life of betrayal of one another. As Jesus said, the time will come when brothers will turn against brothers and daughters will turn their mothers in and mothers turn their daughters in and this and that will happen under that pressure. The line of evil runs through us all. God ultimately isn't in the business of separating bad people from good people but from separating the Adamic evil ontology in every person from the life of Christ for every person. The line runs through us all, this guy said. The line runs through us all. So we have to ask the question, what or whom do I love? To the Pharisees who opposed him, Jesus said in Luke eleven forty three, Woe to you, Pharisees, you love. What do they love? You love the front seats in the synagogues. It says nothing about the front row here. Nothing about the front row. They meant the front seats in the synagogue. It says nothing about Steve. He's not seated up here to, be, to receive your honor. You love the front seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Hello, dear old reverend so-and-so. But John 5, 42, he says this, but I know you, I know you. You have no love for God within you. Wow, man, that stings, I'm telling you. Hurts the Pharisee in me. I have come, he said, in my Father's name, yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. In other words, you don't love me because I defer all the time to my Father. It's not my will, but my Father's. But you would love somebody who comes in his own name as a self-made man because he'll give you the right to be your own man and your own woman and live in your own little program of self-improvement. You'll accept him. Then he said this, how can you believe? How can you even believe? While accepting glory from one another... You don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. Accepting, seeking, glory, applause, glory, recognition, glory, prestige, 
from one another. Now, you may get that. The problem is not getting that recognition. That comes and that goes. The problem is seeking it, wanting it, loving it. That's why people in Hollywood, and I'm not just jamming Hollywood, but that's why they, especially, unfortunately, it's been for women. They're beautiful. They're accepted. They're prestigious. They get great roles. They age. They lose the roles. They lose the glamour. They, and they freak out. So they take prerogatives that you can only have in a rich, indulgent culture to try to stay youthful. You think somebody's trying to do that in Somalia? You think somebody's trying to do that in Iraq? You think they have even the prerogative to spend time sipping cocktails and puffing up their cheeks with Botox over there? You think they got that option? Got it in America. And again, I'm not attacking any particular thing here. I'm just saying that's why some people freak out when the facade fades. Because what's attractive is what's hot, the facade. He or she is hot or not. That's the thing. Because they don't realize that what's truly attractive in the kingdom of God is a kind heart. A loving person. First John 2, do not love the world. Again, that's the present evil age. We could say that. That's a synonym for the present evil age. Or the things that belong to the world, the things that constitute this world, the present evil age. Paul called it the elements of the cosmos. If anyone loves the world, this present evil age, love for the Father is not in him. Because everything that belongs to the world, the evil age, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world, also known as the present evil age. And 217 of John, which correlates, in case I don't in case I lose you, verse John 217 correlates splendidly with Isaiah 40 in verse 8, it uses the same phrase. And here it is. The world with its lust. That's the impulsive desire of the flesh and the Adamic ontology is passing away. That's why there's a new hip way of speaking every couple weeks. And if you use the old one, you're out. The reason why there's a a new change in what's up to date in the language is because the world is passing away right before your eyes and ears. It's passing away. But the word of our God abides forever. Now listen carefully. The world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does God's will, that's Christ, friends. I do my Father's will, but it's also those who participate in Christ's fidelity through the Holy Spirit and the consistent assimilation of the word. The one who does the will of God remains forever. Mene eis ton eona. Mene, ace, tone, aona. That means abides literally to the age, the messianic age. That lasts. Paul also says you have not received the spirit of the cosmos, this present evil age. You have not received the spirit, the zeitgeist as it's called, the spirit of this present evil age. That's the same spirit that Paul calls in Ephesians 2.2, 2, the spirit who now, N-U-N, noon, now, the spirit who now, right now, is at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul expressly says in the same passage, beginning with 2.1 of Ephesians, that when we used to be dead in our trespasses and sins, We walked according to the cosmos, the drumbeat of the prince of the power of the air.
And that prince of the power of the air blows people up with air. He inflates people with self-importance. One of the best things I think we can do for our children is in a creative and loving and gracious way, tell them you're not that important. You're not so important that you can insist on your own way and run into traffic. You're not that important. See what I'm saying? I'm not talking about, of course, their value is infinite. But now children are, unfortunately, the worst abuse of children is the idolization of the child and the allowance of the child to be the center of social life and the center of everything. It's the worst abuse of the child because all idols are eventually smashed. Now, that's just an example. There's hundreds more of them. We used to be dead in trespasses and sins. We marched to the drumbeat of the ruler of the powers of the air who is now currently, presently at work in the disobedient. Now, that it is possible to continue to walk this way. That's an Aerosmith song. Walk this way. Aerosmith Got to lighten up once in a while. This is a tough, heavy message. That it's possible to continue to walk this way is indicated in Ephesians 4, 17 to 19, where Paul tells people whom he calls saints. He testifies in the Lord that his readers should no longer walk as the unregenerate pagans in their futile way of thinking. A fruitless way of thinking, he said, whose understanding is shrouded in darkness, that's called scatosis, and who are estranged from the life of God, that's alienated from participation in the life of the triune God. They're alienated from it. And so are Christians who walk this way. Because of the ignorance in them, he says, and because of the hardness of their hearts, they're added to scatosis, there is sclerosis. And in an age that's fanatically fearful of its physical health, there is a total ignorance of and neglect of the spiritual health of the heart. And so there is the sclerosis of the heart. That's when people get past feeling. So they have to do something else a little more distorted, a little more extreme in order to even feel something. They have to do it. They're greedy for more because they're needy for more. They've passed the, the sense of feeling. Like that tragic song by a present rock group that Johnny Cash did just before he died. He did it well. I hurt myself today to see if I still feel. It goes past. When you're past feeling, you seek sensation. You seek sensuality. You seek more and more things that stimulate and cause you to forget your loss of the spiritual life until eventually you hurt to see if you still feel. That's what it is. They've lost all feelings, Paul said, and so have abandoned themselves to sensuality for stimulation. They're always greedy for more, you see, because they're always needy for more. In verses 20 and 21 of Ephesians, I know this is like the dentist, the part of the dentist where you're drilled and you don't have the option of falling asleep. The drilling. This is the drilling. Don't worry. There's a filling and there's no billing. My dentist had a slow power drill and he also shook a lot and he would say, raise your hand if it hurts. And so I'd be raising my hand for five minutes while he's still drilling. It hurts. It hurts. It hurts. It hurts. And then one time he said to me, when I was, I was about 9 or 10, I think he said, would you rather do this next, next week? And I got up so fast, they had to push me back down. He said, I was only kidding. We're, we're going to do it right now. And I said, oh, thanks. 
My parents were always great about it. They always told us, me and my sisters and I, when we were going to the dentist, the day we were going to the dentist. You're not going to school today. Why? We're going to the dentist. Oh, thanks. At least the pain was limited that way. But this, I'm saying that because I'm doing the drilling now. And I know you're holding your hands up and saying, stop, it hurts, it hurts. And I'm not. Because it's going to feel so good when I stop. (laughs) But in verse 20 to 21 of Ephesians 4, Paul says, but that's not how you learned Christ. That's not how you learned Christ. And then he says, if indeed, assuming that you heard him, my sheep hear my voice. You heard him, your shepherd. Inasmuch as reality itself is embodied in Jesus. That's the message I heard. What is reality? What is the real? What's the real as opposed to the facade? What is it? All I've seen is the facade. And at age 21, screaming from the depth of my soul, what's real? Jesus is real. Reality is embodied in Jesus. The real life is a life participating with his fidelity, the gift of faith to you, for which I'm grateful. Now, then in verse 22 to 24, see, this is where we're going next after this whole universal saving significance thing. He reveals that the Christian spiritual life is to strip off and away from yourselves the former way of life, which is existence of the old Adam in you. The existence of the old Adam in you. Strip it off. The old paleo man who keeps being corrupted, Paul says, by deceitful desires and ambitions. And then he says the spiritual life is after putting off that old man by being renewed in the very spirit of your minds the very core of your thinking and knowing that is by a radical rehabilitation of our very way of knowing and thinking again, Ephesians four twenty three, blending with Romans 12, two to put on the new man, which is newly created in Christ Jesus in the act of divine deliverance for true holiness, not pseudo piety. So in this authentic spiritual life, we imitate Paul himself Imitate me, he said, as I imitate Christ in Philippians 3.17. Don't imitate the enemies of the cross of Christ who glory in their shame, whose end is destruction. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's why we better call Paul. We do not imitate the enemies of the cross of Christ who glory in their shame. We imitate Christ. Again, that's Philippians 3.17. We imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. Paul, who, again, fancy word, but we're ironing it out on Wednesdays and Thursdays, the paradigmatic eschatological man, is that he is the example of the redeemed man in this eschatological age He is that in that he imitates Christ. He is ever and forever marked by the crucified Messiah. I bear in my body the stigmata, he said, the stigma. Once you are impacted by the cross of Christ, you're stigmatized forever in a good way. So Paul is in Christ, ho eschatos Adam, Jesus Christ our Lord, who is a life-giving spirit in whom all of humankind and all beings are to be made alive. Paul lives, Paul writes, Paul dictates his letters as one who is already recapitulated in the second man, in Christ Jesus. Look at me, he said. I'm an example of a redeemed human being recapitulated in Christ Jesus. Having seen him in a way that's kind of a premature birth because everybody's going to see him. I already have. 
So Paul bears God's image, Christ himself, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in a significant way. In 2 Corinthians 4.10-11, this is going to go into two messages. I can see it now. Paul bears God's image in a significant way, even in this life, this life in the flesh. Galatians 2.20. He bears this treasure, as we do. We carry around this treasure in clay pots, 2 Corinthians 4.7. That won't always be the case after bodily resurrection. Ostraka, throwaway pots is what it means. Throwaway containers. The reason for this is that Paul says he lives after co-crucifixion with Christ. Nevertheless, it's not ultimately Paul who lives, but Christ who lives in him. And here's an advance on this doctrine. Christ in each one of us and Christ in all of us is the new humanity. The new humanity is Christ in us, in all of us, in each of us, Colossians 3.11. So it's not quite right, not quite, I've said it before, but this is fine-tuning. It isn't quite right to say about Paul that the old man is Saul and the new man is Paul. What's right is that the old man is the old Adam thriving in Paul, and the new man is Christ living in Paul. Your old man is the old Adam thriving in you. Your new man is Christ living in you. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live, therefore, in the flesh, that doesn't mean the capital F flesh, that means this body, this throwaway pot, which will one day be transformed. I live by the faithfulness. I live within the sphere of the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't set aside the grace of God like those who think they're justified or rectified by their own deeds, their own human goodness, and their own piety. So that's why Paul himself is important. Paul himself as a paradigm of the eschatologically redeemed humanity himself is just as important as all of the epistles he wrote. So there's a whole other study, a wholly other study of Paul himself as a man and what God did in him and what Christ is in him that is, has the same weight as all the epistles that he wrote. In other words, he's a living epistle of all the epistles he wrote. Like Jonah spit up on the beach who must have looked like a phenomenon. Paul was a phenomenon in his time, and he still is. But he's a paradigm. He's intensely aware that the Son of God loved him and gave himself for him. Paul, as the P-E-M, the paradigmatic eschatological man, does not set aside the grace of God, as so many do who assume that their righteous deeds, which Isaiah calls filthy rags in Isaiah 64, 6, or their human goodness, which Paul calls scubula, excrement, in Philippians 3, 7. They assume that that's the means and source of their rectification or being set right by God, rather than the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to a death in which he was hanged on a tree, impaled on a Roman cross, then raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father. Here's the hard part. The drill now hit the nerve. Some of you have to come face to face with the fact that you're more like Demas than Paul. I'm only saying that because I faced that fact. It's always the three fingers coming back that you love this present evil age. I say some of you, because some of us have already come face to face with that fact. So this drilling doesn't hurt as bad. It hurt a while ago, like this morning. 
You love this evil aeon because you love its way of being. Of acting and behaving. You love its always changing en vogue way of speaking. Of being cool, of being hot. Being hot and being cool. Being in, being out. This evil eon is always changing because its cosmetic artificial facade is melting. It's passing away. Just as the darkness of a night ruled by the spirit who inspires disobedience is passing away. The night is far spent. The dawning day is at hand. Put on the armor of light, therefore. Put off the deeds of darkness. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no room for the flesh with its lusts. The cosmos. That's Romans 13, 11 to 14. And as John said, the darkness is already passing away and the true light's already shining. The darkness is already passing away and the life of the coming age is already here, although not totally consummated. In that light, consider as we close Isaiah 40 in verse 6. And this is kind of like my experience in a metaphorical way. A voice was saying, cry out. I said, what should I cry out? The voice of the shepherd said, cry this out. All humanity is grass. And all its goodness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, the people are grass. The grass withers. The flowers fade. But the word of our God remains forever. Same phrase. He who does the will of God remains forever. Mene es ton eona. It simply means when you are determined by the word of God and hate your life as defined by this evil age, but lo- find your life as defined by the word of God that never changes. You're living a life that's a foretaste of the life that will be lived through all the ages. Rather than forfeiting that privilege for the false comfort of an evil age. If you love this present evil age, you love the slogans of the present evil age. And here's where it goes out past Tetelestai. You love its mottos, its demeanor, its philosophy, and its worldview, which is ever-changing because it's always passing away, along with the flesh that it admires and even idolizes. You love the Christianity, and I have to say you this time because if I don't point the finger... You'll never know it's for you. Just like I never know it's for me too. Times three. You love, this is diagnosis. You love the Christianity of the present evil age. It's a Christianity that carefully avoids talk of sin and preaching about the cross. It's a Christianity that's all about self-congratulation and mutual admiration. It's a Christianity that's conformed to the very eon that is hopelessly pitted against God and resistant to his overflowing and ultimately irresistible grace. A Christianity that speaks of good people and bad people rather than all people under sin and in desperate need of ongoing rectification. All people through whom the line of good and evil passes A Christianity that carefully preserves its own life and saves itself in an Adamic ontology while still claiming a relationship with Jesus or a relationship with God more generally. A Christianity that equates patriotism with godliness and raises its flag above the symbol of the cross and the banner of the cross. A Christianity that focuses on the natural family while disregarding the family that hears the word of Christ and cherishes it. This is my mother, my brothers, my sisters. A Christianity that emphasizes race over grace and gender over regeneration. 
You can be excited and motivated. Now, here's where the sting is going to end pretty soon. You can be excited and motivated by a message of universal reconciliation. But that very message without the cross in our daily life only serves to dull your senses and makes you lose the sense of urgency that comes with the realization that we can either forfeit the life of the messianic age in this life or lay hold of it. We can either preserve Adam's life in us, Adam does the speaking in Romans 7, or forfeit it to live the life which can only be described as Christ in us and the fruit of the spirit of Christ through us, Christ in us, who keeps on inspiring the hope of glory. I will finish, even though I will apologize, it's going a little over. This is a message that has to hang together. I heard a voice say, cry out, and I said, cry out what? And he said, cry out what you're crying out. Exclusivist arrogance is a part of loving the present evil age. The Apostle Paul is leading his readers away from that epistemology, that way of knowing. It's a way of knowing in the evil age, an exclusive election. He's leading us into a new epistemology, the way of thinking that goes with the way of living in the new creation. The new messianic aeon, which has already come though not yet in its consummate fullness, which means it requires faith and not sight. It is a way of thinking that's not exclusivist, but inclusivist, not elitist, but humble, not boastful, but modest, not expressive of macho or of stoic virtues, but of the fruit of the spirit of the crucified Christ. Yes, you are elected ones. The drilling's over almost. Yes, you are elected ones. Colossians 3.12. But as elect ones, Paul says, put on the inward aspects of Christ himself. Humility, modesty, compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience, and most of all, love. Why do you have to put them on? Because they are natural to you. They're not something you develop into. It's something you put on from outside, which Christ is in you now, so you put it on from the inside to the out. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and leave no option for the flesh with its desires and ambitions. Let the love of Christ control you because he's the one who died for all. And when that happened, all died with him in order to be made alive together with him. Your election by God does not mean that you are an elite and exclusive club and you use that club to club other people, but that you're part of the beginning of a renewal and redemption of all mankind. So here's a piece of advice. Show compassion and demonstrate humility before the rest of humanity. who you anticipate will be part of that renewal too. Perhaps one day, when the messianic age has come to its fullness, they will remember your kindness, which you showed them in the evil age. And you might even find that when you did that to them, you did it to Christ himself, who embodies all humanity. Drilling's done. Good news now. Good news. Good news. No bill. Drill, fill. No bill. Drilling and filling. No billing. Once we faced and acknowledged our love for the present evil age, if that's been our problem, we've already begun to be delivered from it. Once we recognize there has been a love for the present age, That's a sign that we're being delivered from that love of the present evil age. Grace be with all of you then who have undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. Last verse. 
of Ephesians. Thank you, Father. Sometimes there has to be a challenge. Sometimes the scripture, which is profitable for doctrine, is also profitable for reproof. And I'm so grateful, Father, that our acknowledgement and recognition of our enslavement to sin or our love for the present age is a sign of our deliverance from it. And we thank you for this. And may it be true, as your word works in us, as the spirit of God whom we have received, not the spirit of the age, but the spirit of God that we have received. May we learn of all the things that have been freely given to us by you through Christ. And may we reflect that. And may we operate in the consciousness that we are only the beginning of a renewal that's getting us all of a new creation that's come to call that's getting us all. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity.